0: Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to The Gould Standard, a regular arts magazine brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. We bring you conversations with incredible people from across the world of the arts. If music, books, theater, film and dance, visual art, and more are what you crave in these pandemic times, then you've come to the right place. Be sure you press like, share, and subscribe, add your comments, pose your questions, and be part of our community. And you can be a supporter, too. You can go to www.glengould.ca and find a lot more wonderful content. And while you're there, please consider making a generous donation. Now, our guest today belongs to an extraordinary yet often unsung breed of musical heroes. They're creators who, if you're like me, have played an essential role in shaping some of the most exciting, heartbreaking, and inspiringly memorable Moments in our film loving lives. They're masters of telling stories without words, and our guest is one of the finest among them today. Harry Gregson Williams is one of the leading composers of film music of our generation, ranging from heart pounding action adventure films like Total Recall, Unstoppable, Man on Fire to dramatic films like The Zookeeper's Wife and Veronica Guerin, epics like Kingdom of Heaven, science fiction films like Prometheus, The Martian, and Cowboys and Aliens, to fantasy classics like the Narnia films, and a whole slew of scores for animated movies, notably the Shrek films, Ants, and those claymation miracles from Aardman Studios. And in a strange middle ground, somewhere in between, the world's first ever feature film for a cast completely made up of marionette puppets. Now, I have to confess, I've been a sucker for film music since I was a kid. I got hooked first when I was about seven years old and first encountered Max Steiner's score for the original 1933 version of King Kong. And soon I became a fan of Bernard Herrmann, Franz Waxman, eventually Nino Rota, Ennio Morricone, Maurice Jarre, Jerry Goldsmith, and inevitably Hans Zimmer, Howard Shore, and John Williams. Now, the world of film scoring has evolved hugely since those early days of sound films, driven by industry changes, the end of the Hollywood studio system, the range of subject matter that films tackle, and, above all, by huge advances in technology. But at the heart of it all, the music that helps make those films leap off the screen into our hearts and minds starts with a composer. His inventiveness, dramatic instincts, professionalism, and versatility— and it's such a pleasure to welcome one of the very best, Harry Gregson-Williams. Thank you for joining us, Harry. Oh, my pleasure, Brian, my pleasure. Now, you began in the world of choral music at, in the very early days. Yes. Uh, so you were part of that grand choral tradition. I imagine that as a lad you did your your share of allegory Miser- miseraries. And, I did. You know, I never got personal. to sing the top
1: C, though. I, I was always second fiddle there. Although I, I did beca- <laughs> I did become the head chorister, but who traditionally would sing the solo top C part. But I guess my voice wasn't quite the right one for that, so the choir uh-huh. master had me sing the second part, yeah.
0: And that started very young. I think you got a scholarship to St. John's College from, was it seven?
1: Yeah, you know, I went there at about six or seven years of age. And when I look back on it, the musical... I was going to say musical education, but, of course, to a 6-, 7-year-old, it doesn't really feel like education. The immersion that was that went on at that school. You've got to remember, this school was set up by, I might be right in thinking, Henry VIII, yeah. rather a long time ago, specifically mm-hmm. for 16 kids, 16 boys specifically, to sing the praises of God every day at 6 o'clock in the chapel, a very beautiful chapel in St. John's, Cambridge. And around those 16 boys... A commercial school built up in order to probably fund it and make, make make it more humane for the sixteen boys who were singing. But so there were there were boys at the school who weren't in the choir, and then there were the sixteen of us who were. And yeah, we would we'd be woken early in the morning before dawn. We'd have to run what was called the block, which was probably about three or four blocks around the school. Wake ourselves up, then we'd have breakfast, then we would practice our instruments for an hour or something like that. Then most of the school would go the other because it was a boarding school all the other boys, 140 boys or something, would go to class, you know, like a regular kid would. Mm -hmm. The 16 took a little walk. We put on our mortarboards and our cassocks, whatever they were, and uh, walked across the, the playing fields into the college for the first choir practice of the day. That would be about an hour and a half, and we'd walk all the way back. By the time we got back to the school, school, they'd already had the first two or three periods. Consequently, my math was pretty bad by the time I left that school <laughs> they always used to schedule it to begin with I got to my next school and they're like Harry I think we need to do some work on your tables I'm like yeah I think we might <laughs> and but then we would be just like the other regular boys in the school through the rest of the morning through lunchtime and then through what was called games time which we'd be out playing cricket rugby or whatever on the playing fields and then in the middle of that which is always used to irk me because I, I, I love my sports right in the middle of the afternoon when we were in the middle of games practice whatever sport it was we were called away back to the school we'd shower early get back into our fancy gear and we'd make the walk again over to the same place that we'd been in the morning for another choir practice another hour practice and then we would sing evensong and then we'd be back it would probably be dark by then we'd probably go to bed so that was our day and in in the yeah. school, in the school holidays, as it were, in the during school recess, as it were, often we would go on tour, or we would be kept back at school to make records. Decker would come and shove up a load of microphones in our chapel, and we would make records so
0: fascinating that's that was, I guess a professional musical life, yeah. even though probably uh, I don't know whether when you toured, you saw any coin from that.
1: yeah, um, <laughs> do you know we did. We, my mum, no. I remember my mum opened what was called a a post office account. I don't know that they exist anymore. No, I don't know what the equivalent would be here in the states. It was a little account that you could open, and every recording, yeah, we would get twenty to forty pounds. That was no late sixties, early seventies. That was that yes. that that built up so much so that when I was a a shaggy sixteen year old years later, I was able to I managed to get that little pocketbook off my mum. Say, I think I want to spend that money. I bought myself a motorbike. Yeah, so it couldn't have been nothing. Certainly no. brought me that, but in all seriousness, a, an education like that was invaluable, and has it did set me up. To be honest, it set me up for a bit of a fall because I don't think one could maintain that amount of on one one during the summer one one uh, summer recess when we were touring. We would toured Europe a lot in a coach, right. a big old bus would take us from cathedral to cathedral. We were in Notre Dame, I think, in Paris, okay. and I'll never forget. I think I was probably I was probably in the middle of my time of being there. So it would be in the mid... So probably about 1972 or something. And we were to sing "O Sacrum Convivium by Messia. And I think Messia had quite a relationship with Notre Dame, with the place that we were actually going to sing it in. But what I recall mostly, most vividly, was the choir master when this particular piece came quite a lot of uh, the music that we used to sing was accompanied by the organ the church organ mm-hmm. so that's where we got our tuning from and all the rest of it but this particular piece i think maybe it wasn't the messiah some other piece but yeah it was an f sharp minor and the trebles i.e my part had to come in in a top g sharp above the stave
0: mm-hmm. a
1: top g sharp in f sharp minor so <laughs> in rehearsal so I had to do it from memory. So standing there in rehearsal all sorts of people milling about the Notre Dame, you know, tourists in the bottom of the thing. And uh, the choir master, George Guest beat his knee with a tuning fork. And it would be an A. Yeah, really helpful. You've got to come in and top G <laughs> sharp. <laughs> I can think of words. But, and then it was like, so in, in the concert we would hear, and then it would be three. And out of thin air, one would have to pluck this. Yeah this this ludicrously high note. Actually, I don't think it is. I don't, it wasn't the Messiaen piece, some other piece, but we did sing that the Osacrum there. But so, there, there was a certain amount of um, discipline that I learned there and focus, mm-hmm. and that definitely has served me well throughout my life. But I've really only been trying to be a film composer for, I guess, I saw it written down the other day, someone called me a veteran. Bloody hell. I must have been <laughs> doing it for longer than five minutes then. It feels like um, five or ten minutes, but I actually came over to L.A. in 1995, to join Hans Zimmer. But previous to that, in between that moment and the moment I left the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is where I studied music as a 18-, 19-year-old in London, I did 10 or 12 years teaching of music. Oh, wow. So that was really my passion, my vocation, if you like. And still, and still is. It surfaces from time to time, and I'm reminded of what I really probably am best at. <laughs> but I've been masquerading as a film composer... But now perhaps the cat's out of the bag.
0: (laughs) Yep, you do some amazing masterclasses. So that teaching impulse certainly comes across but hmm. it's also early on you you studied piano mm-hmm. i guess you you uh, got a rather fancy piano from your dad out of out of a good a good run of fortune
1: there was a, a sort of family tale it's my truth one of my brothers disputes that another one has confirmed it but yeah i don't know but uh, it is said that my father won a rather g- handy bet on a racehorse and that was how he afforded to buy us his family Our first Broadwood Grand Piano, which is what all of us learned on. And it's so funny, when you learn, I I don't know what Glenn Gould's first instrument was, but but, uh, now I recall you showed me that last time we were on. Fantastic. So who makes that? What is that?
0: That is a Dominion piano. It was actually made outside of Toronto in a town called Bowmanville. At the time it was made, around 1915, there were about 200 factories in Canada making pianos and uh, so many others, so many great American makers, one by one they fell by the wayside, especially Uh during the Depression. Mm. But uh, this instrument, I'm afraid, is a bit of a noble wreck. It was carted on the back of a trailer to and from the Gould family home to his cottage, every weekend so that he could play because he wouldn't go to the cottage without it and uh, then left in the unheated cottage over a number of canadian winters i i know
1: what Gould achieved in his adult life but i don't know anything about his childhood did he tell me was he a prodigy was he he was he was was. so he he wasn't he wasn't like a late starter or something no he
0: oh he they discovered that he had perfect pitch when he was a young child, I think some six or seven, and began advanced studies. His first teacher was his mother. Actually, she, Hmm. when he was three years old, would sit on her lap at that piano and take his first lessons. And uh, he was playing full concerts by the time he was seven or eight, I believe. Won one competition, the first Kiwanis competition held in Toronto, and turned to his mother and said, I'm never doing one of those again <laughs> because he hated competition and he was he was regarded as a wunderkind pretty much from the get-go. Mhm. Yeah. No but pressure it's interesting then. that your first piano was a Broadwood. We actually used to own a Broadwood grand which was donated to us and it was stored at the home of a of a kind person who decided that it no longer fit with her decor so we had to to give it up i had this fantasy because it had a beautiful rosewood case that we would uh-huh. bring it to the office bring it to the office and use it as a a board table <laughs> but last we would have to have gotten much higher chairs yeah quite so uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll
1: just cut the legs off
0: no yeah the, the, it was just you uh,
1: there's something about one's first piano that no other piano I'm resigned to the fact that no other piano will feel like that. I'm sad to say that it met a sticky end, a tricky end. After my dad died, his possessions were put into a place which wasn't dry, storage Uh. which wasn't dry, and it just fell apart. It was very sad, so we won't see that again. But, yeah, it was a a lovely old thing. What I remember about it was so silky, the touch. It was probably, I could probably trace it back to having such a, uh, disappointing piano technique myself <laughs> because mm-hmm. every piano I played after that seemed very stiff and very difficult to play. This one was so silky and the touch was just so soft. But, uh, and it had yeah. a, a glorious, very woody tone, which I, yeah, back in the day I would play duets with my father. We'd, we, we would spend weekends going through playing Schubert piano duets and I would play... And I would sing, my sister would play clarinet. She had a particular tone, which probably fit really well with the broadwood. It was probably because of the piano, but it was a very round, very English clarinet sound that Mm -hmm. she made. But I think tone and colour are so important in music, in all aspects of music, but in what I do, particularly in film music. Just because we're telling stories with music and texture and tone and colour... Funny enough, I was thinking about this earlier. I'm doing a, a movie at the moment, movie score for Ridley Scott, and we've done a few together. And I was thinking how great it was that we had we shared this terminology because he doesn't he wants to collaborate musically. He doesn't overstep that, but he wants to have an input, obviously, in in the music. And he's very focused on what we're setting up in in every frame of his film. But he, the guy is an artist. Him and his brother Tony were art students before they did any of this, before they came to Hollywood. They're both at the College of Art in London, and he still paints. And I think after breakfast often he'll go out and he'll paint and paint. And so he talks in terms of texture, color, tone, light, all things I can understand mm. musically. So that's where, we, that's where we find we can communicate. You know, I just this very morning, actually, last night I sent him some cues, for, for, for this movie we're working on, because he, he's actually in France at the moment and I'm here in LA. And he got back to me with, I'm feeling the end of that cue could have a, li- a more lighter touch. Or, 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 or I'm not sure about the texture here, or I really like the texture here. So tone and color, these are all things that, that, that art and music share, and it's pretty handy in terms of terminology.
0: Right. There's a condition known as synesthesia, where musical tones can be associated with colors and Mm -hmm. visual effects. And it sounds as though that creates a sort of a synthesis that can bridge the two different languages so that you can communicate.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So you had a choral background and a piano background and you went to the guild hall were you focused on piano at that point no or I was, <laughs>
1: no because I had done these five years at St. John's Cambridge from when I was seven to thirteen or so and a 13 year old boy is beginning not to be what St. John's College Cambridge needs because the voice is mm-hmm. going to change uh, and that's I wasn't there to sing tenor or bass I was there to sing the top line so one moved on to the next school and then and then college in London music college. But no, I was always earning my supper by singing. Mm-hmm. So I was a first-study singer, as they say. But it was a little bit ironic because I, I played violin and, and piano as well. But I got a place at, uh, at the music college as a singer. But then when I showed up as an 18-year-old, I moved to London. I got a little, what we call a bed sit. I think you call it a studio mm-hmm. here. Basically, it's a sitting room and a bedroom all in one. And I knew I was in trouble when my mum gave me a cookbook, which is called One is Fun, I'm like, Mum, one is not fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> one is Fun by Delia Smith. I remember it. I'm like, Mum, what am I going to do with that? I haven't even got... She said, you've got one ring of a cooking stove. One could be fun, hey? Yeah. So having arrived there, I was 18. I barely started shaving. I'm, I'm vertically challenged as it is. I've showed up, and these all the other singers, who we were all met in the same room, you know, all the pianists were going over there, and the violinists, and it was the first day of college. I show up, and there are these six foot four men with beards and and sandals <laughs> and with voices like this. And I thought, like, good God, this uh, it's not gonna work out. I'm at this little <laughs> shrimp standing there. And I was more interested in playing the piano in the local pub. No. So I had to divert my attentions. I realized that I couldn't I couldn't really be Luciano Pavarotti. You know, it wasn't gonna happen. And although I'd been very successful singing my way through my life up until that point. That's where I had to stop, and I had to I had to find something else within, obviously within music, that that, that would interest me. And is that where teaching? Yeah, uh, it well, It's exactly where teaching. And it was quite accidental. I, I I didn't stay to the very end of, of my course at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama because every class I went to, they said, Oh no, oh no, 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 no. your voice has to. I was eighteen or nineteen. I want to be on the opera course. No, 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 we, your, your voice is still settling. Well, go to German <laughs> class, go to Italian class. I'm like, hold on, I don't need to be going to school here. I want to sing. No, so oh, try some leader. So I go to the leader class. I'm like, yes, you really, your voice needs to settle and be more resonant before we can really... I'm like, okay, what are you going to do with me? I can't just sit in London. So i like, okay. So I took off and had a chance meeting with a very eccentric old man who happened to be looking for in his little prep school, a little boys boarding school in the countryside outside London, he was looking for someone to galvanise his boys, he had a boys school about 140 boys in the school, all boarders galvanised the music department because there was no music department, it was one of his very old fashioned schools, almost Dickensian and this old chap Dominic, the headmaster he said to me, Harry have you done any teaching before? So I said, No, but I mean, it's only five minutes ago since I was in school myself. I think I can remember how it goes. He said, Well, how do you get your haircut. we will put you in a sports jane, in a suit or something. Okay, you, can you do anything else? So I said, Yeah, I've got an A level in English. I, 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 yeah, I, I could teach English, but sports is my other love. He said, Great, you can teach the under 11s hockey, the under 11s cricket, the under 11s rugby. You can also be the gym master. So I ended up being the... Yeah, threw that in. So I was the director of music, the gym master, and the the coach of the under 11 sports, and I loved it. It was only like it was like a gift, and I had no teaching experience. Now it has to be said that this was a private boys boarding school, and so it didn't adhere to the government rules. If I wanted to teach in a proper, an, a regular school. I'd had to have gone through and got a degree in teaching or whatever you do. Mm-hmm. So it suited me because I'm a musician looking for a job. And the two things that I'm relatively good at and I'm absolutely passionate about are music and sports. And he put me in charge of both at the school. And when I walked in there, it turned out this school had absolutely no history of music within it. Uh, it, was, it was a very lovely, very eccentric, old-fashioned school, but set in some beautiful grounds. And... I don't know. I think the, there were two or three beaten up pianos in classrooms. You put a piano in a classroom where the boys spend most of their day, they're going to bash the damn thing up. They used it yeah. for bouncing balls off. No one played those <laughs> things. About three or four kids took peripatetic lessons. And that was it. But after I'd been there five years, I had my cricket team in my choir, my orchestra playing outside. I had about 100 of them learning instruments. And, we, and it, I just completely... I just revolutionised the the way music was thought of. And, and, and it really played into my hands because it had been that if you took music classes, they were during sports practice in the afternoon. I'm like, no way, man. Uh, if it were up to me, I'd probably want to go and play cricket or rugby instead of come and practise the piano. I understand mm-hmm. that. So what we're going to do is we're going to get them up before breakfast. And so I basically ran a school rather like St John's with that we're, we're trying to aim for those standards. And they the boys really responded to it, and I loved it so much. And I only left after five years because I suddenly had a realization that I, this my life would probably yeah, this would probably be it. I was quite content. I couldn't imagine anything else, and I forced myself to look for the next frontier and and to put myself in a, a less comfortable and more vulnerable position. So I took a teaching job. In Egypt, when none of the kids spoke English, so it was mm-hmm. like, okay, music is a is an international language. <laughs> Bloody hope it is. <laughs> it could be a real trouble if it's not. So I <laughs> learned a little bit of Arabic. We try and learn the names of kids in a class, and you call out the name Ahmed, and seventeen boys stand up. I yeah, I was a little lost, but I had great fun. I had I think I put on the first musical that these children had ever seen in Alexandria. And I moved bef- between Alexandria and Egypt. This is in the early 1980s. Uh, no, late 1980s. And I had a wonderful time. I was very inspired by what music could do for children and in such situations. And I pulled together four or five of the schools in Alex, and I asked the person who had hired me, I don't know who was in charge of these schools, could I try and put on a musical? I would love to do this. And they su- mm-hmm. I had to explain what it would entail. I, I'd need a stage, some sort. I wouldn't need anybody else. I could direct them in every way, singing and acting. And we could get some parents involved in costumes and scenery and things like that. And I, we'd get a little band. And and they were pretty suspicious about this. They're like, well, I, I don't know about this. They'd never seen anything like this. So I put on Oliver. <laughs> Oliver? Oh, on City wow. Yourself? Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. And, uh, yeah, it was something different, and I returned to London. And shortly after that, I, I met the, the man who changed the course of my life, um, which brought me to this place.
0: The career tra- trajectory that you just described does not suggest in any way, shape, or form film composing, let alone composing. What was the the step that led to that?
1: Well, no, I mean, it, any music teacher will tell you, as creative as creative as you can be the better, better things are going to be I, on my poor unsuspecting students I, I never found any material that I liked or that the kids even wanted to play in the orchestras or choirs I was always writing it myself for them
0: mm-hmm. so I had
1: been creating music no I think frankly the the way this, this came about was having when I got back from London well, from Egypt uh, uh, to London I was introduced to Richard Harvey who was a leading film and TV guy of a very high quality. He wasn't any of your old nonsense. He, was, he is a very good concert composer who's done a lot of film and TV. And he had a really cool studio in the King's Road in London. And his interests were the same as mine. He was really into cricket. He was into all sorts of music and had this really neat studio where he really could use a, a pair of hands just to basically tail him assist him in anything and everything that he did so I did that for a few years and he introduced me to Hans Zimmer who Mm. then brought me to the States and that's how I I came here but the composing thing I was first a fly on the wall with Richard uh, Harvey as he showed me a lot of of the qualities that were needed to to at least even try and be a film composer and then he introduced me to Hans, Hans Zimmer and uh, over in London and it was Hans who said look why don't you come out to LA and assist me and I think it's quite well written and Versed, that Hans has quite a few people under his wing now. But mm-hmm. actually in, in, in June 1995 when I showed up, he had a tech, maybe two techs. He had one composing assistant who was graduating, a lovely composer, another English lad called Nick Glennie smith And he, was, he, was, he had been assisting Hans and writing additional music and he was ready to spread his wings and do his own scores. And so that kind of left the gap. Which which I filled, and I assisted Hans for quite a few years, and, and stuck uh, by his side even after I, s- I stopped assisting. And I was already doing my own scores. Yeah, mm-hmm. we got on like a house on fire, and I still love the guy. He's a, he's a big um, influence in my life.
0: Well, and that that describes apprenticeship in in the best sense of the word. Yeah, being thrown in the deep end and learning by doing. What sorts of responsibilities? Did he give you in the early days to get you immersed? The first
1: thing I had to learn to do was to use a computer in music because I'd never done... I, didn't, I hadn't owned a computer up to that. I didn't come to America. I came to America with hand luggage in 1995, mm-hmm. a rather sketchy visa, and, yeah, uh, a, a lot of hope. Hans said, OK, go into that room and learn Cubase. It was the, the program that he likes to use, Steinberg Cubase. They're all pretty much just these things, but the particular one that he uses, he insisted on that I learn. So he thrust me into a room and didn't let me out until I, I was really handy. And by, by for anybody who doesn't know, by when I say using a computer and music, what I really mean is that with the, it was just on the cusp of the advent of masses of libraries of samples coming out. That is to say that one could have on one's template have a keyboard, a computer... With a program like Cubase, another one is Logic that people use, that will allow one to sequence music, in other words, layer it. So on the template within Cubase, we might have a full orchestra. So I have the cello section, the violin section, a flute, a clarinet, an oboe, French horns. So by by selecting each track, then going into some sort of a sequence, one could start to start to build up the sound of an orchestra or... It might be drums, bass and guitar. It could be mm-hmm. anything that one could get inside a computer which would then be bounced out. So that, that was what, what he, he thought was most important for me if I were to make any headway, was to be able to collaborate with filmmakers. And what he, his point was that the only way that we can be sure of really opening our doors to, to a filmmaker who may or may not have any musical terminology on his lips. He may not be able to express himself musically, but he's sure as hell going to be able to react. So if we can, rather than be of the old school, who I guess the John Williamses of this world probably had Stephen Spielberg come over and he would play him a a nice tune and say, look, the French horns are going to belt that out and the trumpets are going to, when Superman does, and describe it, and probably that was great. We'll see on the scoring stage with the orchestra. But that's not how Mm -hmm. it happened. But from the 90s, that's not how it was happening for ordinary mortals like me no one was going to hire a symphony orchestra just to see me mm-hmm. experiment with a bunch of trumpets they'd like to know what the hell that looks like and sounds like first so with these samples we were able to do that we were able right. to but in order to do that you had to become quite adept at this weird thing called programming you, you could spend a lifetime in music like Glenn Gould ha- had and not need a computer or have go anywhere near one unnecessary with this way of being a film composer? Absolutely one hundred percent necessary. Right. I'm not John Williams. I may have Williams in my last name. <laughs> but that's as far as the, <laughs> the, the likeness goes, unfortunately. No. So it's completely necessary to Yeah, I just literally before we we, we got onto the Sunquo, I just had some filmmakers in here. I'm doing some music for a film that'll come out next year. And I got I gotta get over that. I gotta create a cue that's so believable, that sounds so like uh, how it would sound if an orchestra played it, that's not a distraction, that he can focus on what the tone and the texture is and how that's reacting to his pictures and how well it's telling the story. And it, uh, all those things can be worked out. Had I just played him a piano demo, I'd have to keep saying excuse the fact that it's a piano, it's it's actually going to be a string quartet with a didgeridoo mm-hmm. in the background. But this isn't it, we don't have to go there you can say look This is how it's going to sound. It's going to sound better than this. It's going to sound live with the real people doing it. But you'll get an idea. And with every year that goes by, the the quality of of these samples improves. And I hope your your next question is not going to be what it might be, which would be, is there a case for not needing live players? Because that's going to a nutty extreme. The answer is, of course not. Of course You throw (laughs) a bunch of people... The artistry that a human being can bring to something as opposed to a computer, I don't care how good the samples are. Yeah, what I'm talking about is the the, the marked difference between being a John Williamson sitting at a piano and saying, this is how the symphony orchestra is going to sound. I don't know how you make a piano sound like a symphony orchestra, but... And what I can do here behind me is I can make it sound like a symphony orchestra. You're not going to have to sit there and think, ooh... I wonder which the French horn is. You're going to hear it. Right. And you're going to know it's a French horn. It's that good. But is it a replacement for the real thing? No. My God. There's no air being pushed. There's no literally, physically. No. And then my experience of, I don't know, of, of all the symphonic scores that I've tried to do, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 of the things. Because I'm sure I must have done 30 or 40 scores that have no orchestra at all. But the majority of them do. And it's such a thrill. It's such a thrill. On day one, well, on every day, but day one, on the downbeat, to stand on the podium, headphones on, and the orchestra sitting there. So, come on, these people are all... When I go back to London to record a score, which I love to do, I love to record here in L.A. or, or anywhere in the world. I've recorded in Vienna, in actually recorded in Bulgaria recently, Sofia. Mm-hmm. But when I go back to London, I stand on the podium. Oh, the second cello down from the right. Didn't I have a fling with her at the Guildhall? <laughs> or, or, or the, no, these are the people that came out with me. I just right, went right. off and did this. Yeah, and they're, they're my contemporaries. Some of them are a bit older, and some of them are a bit younger. A lot of them, yeah. And we know each other now because... Hell, I I must have done 30 or 40 scores at Abbey Road and each score is, what, a week with these people or five or six days? Yeah, it's intense and one builds up a a heck of a rapport with these people because that's where it all comes to life. But I think, in my mind, they're two separate things. Standing up in front of a real orchestra where Sir Thomas Beecham did with Elgar, you know, Abbey Road Studio One, that's one thing. Now, doing a bunch of samples, that's another thing. It's another purpose as well. The purpose right. of this is to allow me to get to the next stage because they're not going to spend the money on... The, the, if I can't show them that I'm coming up with the goods, why would they let me loose on the expensive confines of Abbey Road Studio One with a big old symphony orchestra?
0: And I was going to ask you to describe the birth and life of a typical score. There's no such thing as a typical score, hmm. but if you can generalize... Yeah, from absolutely. ...how you become attached to a project all hmm. the way through... The, the different stages of its development?
1: Sure. More often than not now, I'm asked to do a film. But quite often, uh, yesterday I had a... Well, of course, it's a, a Zoom call because it's uh, COVID. But it's an interview about some Netflix thing that I really want to do. And I know... I know they're out to four or five other composers and I know one of them is a really good buddy of mine. <laughs> which is a bit awkward. At least I know it's not my brother because yeah, often we're up against each other. But uh, yeah, I've got to throw my hat in the ring like anybody else. Uh, and sometimes if it's sort of a movie I'm doing right now, is directed by Ridley Scott and we've got a relationship. So he just called me and said, you're doing it. He didn't ask me if I wanted to. He just told me mm-hmm. I was. But that's Ridley for you. So that's brilliant. Very fortunate. So I, he would send me probably his rough cut of the movie, which might be much longer than the film's actually going to be because he's still shuffling the pack. So all the actors, been paid, read their lines, been filmed, gone home. So that part's done, production. Now in post-production, on a film, any film, there might be millions of feet of film. And that's quite, I've always been absolutely flabbergasted at, 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 at good film editing, if you think about it, especially with complex, twisty plots. To be able to tell the story lucidly and not clunkily, like pushing it at the audience. Amazing, really. So on a typical movie, I might be engaged as they go into post-production. So director might send me a three-and-a-half-hour film. And I know that it's only going to be two hours. Maybe be shorter than that. If it's an animation, it probably won't be longer than 90 minutes. So I can start getting a feel for it. And typically, I would start at the piano. I trust myself at the piano. I'm not stretching, I'm not using computers that I can. it's a comfortable place to start and I'll try, I'll be playing I have a, a screen above my station there and I'll be playing the film on loop in my studio and just getting used to the characters understanding the characters, understanding trying to find somewhere where where music might be able to tell part of the story that isn't necessarily on the screen and it brings another dimension to it perhaps, and then I've got to try and translate that from intellectualising it into musical terms. So I might be at the piano and start, depending on what sort of score I want it to be, start fiddling with melody. And I'll... <laughs> I still use pencil and paper, obviously, manuscript. I'll just scratch something out at the piano, and I'll probably spend a week or two doing that. Depending, If I've got a nice, decent arc, which would normally be, say, 12 weeks from beginning to end.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or 16 weeks, if I'm lucky. Or... <sighs> A year and a half if it's a COVID year yeah if I've got time then I'll, I'll keep experimenting and I'll resist the temptation to actually start to try and score a moment of film and then I won't be able to resist any longer mm-hmm. I'll sneak over there and I'll start arranging whatever it is I have so typically I'm going to go up to the piano yeah oh look ah, here I am brilliant and, yeah so
0: normally I'd
1: be over here I'd be scratching away here I don't know what we've got here. I'm my breath. So this for instance, this is a theme for the Martian. It's a film I did with Ridley. And I just etched it out here. It would be something like very simple. Matt Damon character in that, I'll be trying but Mm -hmm. I'm not focusing on minute details of the film, just the broad picture. And when I'm done with that, I'll go over to my station and I'll start thinking, well, I know this isn't going to be solo piano what could it be? So I'll probably lay in the piano just like you heard it and then, for instance, on that particular score to, just to use it as an example, to reflect his techiness and the main character's really into kind of tech, and he has to be to get himself off off yeah. Mars and back to Earth. I thought it appropriate to have some, like, bubbling synth. So I'll go to my synth and start finding, like, a sequence synth, and then I realise that I don't actually need the middle part of the piano at all because it's being covered mm-hmm. by and I'll start layering things and, and, and before you I've got 16 bars of, of something that, that really seems to fit the Matt Damon character mm-hmm. at least I think so at that point point. and at that point if I feel I'm on the right course I will choose a scene, I'll start to look at the scene and see where a melody needs to come in where I need to vamp for a little bit just to chill out, to go underscore then where perhaps a modulation might come where we can hear the tune in full so a two, three minute patch of the film and I'd probably sequence that and start really arranging it make it as perfect as I can and at that point I'd call the director and say could he come over and I'd bring him over and I'd start at the piano I'd take him through the process the thing is if I don't get over there if I get stuck at the piano then I know i failed because all the while I've got to read his body language because it depends who it is if I've worked with a person often then we might be all chummy and talking about each other's kids or whatever it might be not like that at all could be someone who's a little shifty and I, I don't know i don't know them very well i'd start at the piano and i'd check out their body language say look this is what i'm thinking and now i'm thinking and then i'd show them my bubbling synth, and mm-hmm. then i'd put the picture on have them sit right up front and turn the lights down and hit them with that hey you win some you lose some what can right. i say and as a film composer you've got to be prepared for both because even on a win, that's just one, two, three minute cue. On the Martian, we're talking about the Martian, there were ninety two minutes of music to write, to orchestrate, to produce, to arrange, to get approved, to then go and record and mix and get into the film. That's a lot mm-hmm. of work. It's a lot and good. But that's not where it yeah. finishes.
0: You get a, a rough cut to start with, yeah. but that can change around a lot, and it's going
1: to get shorter.
0: It's, it's a bit of a nightmare, to be honest, Brian.
1: The It's it can be can be frustrating, but one knows it's coming down the pike. We've just got to deal with that, like everything else. Mm-hmm. So, yes, things are going to shrink. That's why, if one dares to hold off actually scoring specific moments and getting the filmmakers on board with the tone and quality of what you're trying to do, maybe there's themes for different characters or a geographical theme or if this thing was set down south at raikou to film maybe you strap on a guitar and see how they feel about it and and once we've got all that the tone of the texture the conceptualisation of the whole thing but yeah at some stage one needs to start specific scoring of each scene and that can be frustrating because you might spend two days two nights on a particular scene and think great I'll play this to my director you know, before the end of the week and just before the end of the week the film editor sends over a new cut of the movie and that scene's been cut. Not only has it been cut, they didn't just cut two seconds off the end of it. They put the beginning of it at the end of another scene and the end of it, much shorter version, at the beginning of... <laughs> of course, because they're shuffling the deck. And that's, they're making the film better. They're not doing it to torture you. But yes, and yeah. It, on the surface of it, it feels disarray. But yeah. after doing a few of these films where, where, where this happens... You realize you've got to keep a calm head, and and it's no good trying to hang on to something that can't be hung on to. This piece of music that one's created that seemed to be just perfect for the scene, now that scene's been split in two, and there's got to be a reason for that. You know, who knows? It might get glued back together again.
0: Yeah. But your musical arc may extend across two different sequences, and one of them may end up in a completely different place. End up in a completely different film (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: and get thrown out. No. But yeah, so this is post-production. No one said this was going to be like concert music. What I write is what they're going to hear. And I've always, it's always appealed to me, actually, the kind of collaborative nature of this whole filmmaking thing. Yep. I always thought to myself, I mentioned earlier that I'm really into my sports, particularly cricket and rugby, and they're team sports. If I, were, if I could have been in a you know, represented England, say, or now an American citizen, <laughs> maybe the U.S., That would be funky. It wouldn't be as a golfer, let's say. It (laughs) wouldn't be as a tennis player. It just would be a team sport. I like the cut and thrust of the team, the locker room, if you like. (laughs) I do. I just always have. It's rewarding to be a part of something, a a bigger thing. And to work for inspiring directors, it's quite an honor, really.
0: Yeah, but I I take it that you don't get to pick up the phone to the editor and say, that spot at 12 minutes 32 seconds where you make the cut to yeah. to the dark corridor could you do that three seconds earlier it would really fit better
1: i have done that uh, three seconds no three frames maybe ah uh-huh. yeah three seconds no i don't think i don't think so no I, it depa- really depends i've worked with some amazing editors time and time again and so, again, like, a bit like with a director, once you have got a relationship, absolutely! He's just a bloody film editor. He's not just like I'm a damn composer. Come on, we're just we're all trying to work the same thing. Excuse me, could you cut three frames off the end of that thing? It's just my downbeat just wants to come, you know, whatever. I'm sure the answer is yes. Quite often on animation, one's, one's been working on these things. You know, I worked on the first Shrek pretty much the whole time I was writing music on that one, the guy was running around with no legs. He didn't have a Scottish (laughs) accent. All these things came tumbling in at the end. It is somewhat unpredictable, I can tell you.
0: But editors, in addition to understanding narrative, they have rhythm. And does that help? Yes, it it does.
1: It does. It does. Sometimes one can run into... Interesting little situations where, in order to help an editor put a scene together, or perhaps a montage, particularly a montage, an extended sequence, he's used music—not the composer's music, not the composed music, because maybe the composer hasn't even come on the project yet—but he's Mm -hmm. used a piece of Zimmer. Say, (laughs) fancy that! Can't imagine why (laughs) he'd do that. Yeah,
0: he's everywhere.
1: Yeah, everywhere. It's everywhere. (laughs) So he's used his Batman cue. And so there really is, and, and when it comes to you, the composer, it's already, I'm like, whoa, what do you want me for? It's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Just go and license the piece of music from Zimmer. Yeah, so often that, that's where they'll find their rhythm, is in music. I'm sure there are some film editors that don't use music to do that, but I don't know why they wouldn't. I know right. a lot of film editors do. And the the conundrum for me as a composer is to, in all seriousness, take that piece of Zimmer off, put it aside, and try and find my own rhythm within the rhythm that's already been set. And as with rhythms, there can be polyrhythms, counterrhythms. So there there are ways to get around these things.
0: It doesn't necessarily have to be restrictive because they use the temp track to set one basic rhythm because there are a hundred different ways that you can subdivide beats or work against the beat. How about the role of the music supervisor? Large... AAA films have a lot of songs layered in. Sometimes when I read the credits, I don't even remember hearing some of the songs. There are elements in the soundtrack that presumably are not within your bailiwick. What does that relationship look like?
1: Don't know. Never see them. (laughs) Different department. (laughs) You might use the same word, music, but... But basically, the closest I ever get to anything like that is is if I'm working with an Andrew Adamson who did the Shreks and then Nanias nine years he chose the artist to sing the songs in those just because me and Andrew are good friends and whatnot. But no, I do a movie like Bridget Jones, there's 92 songs in it. Very little score. And My job is to weave in and out of the score, really. But did I get to choose those songs or have any say? None at all. And hmm. it's not really my thing anyhow. Yeah, yeah I rarely get to me- work with a music supervisor. Work yeah. with... <laughs> work against, maybe, because they're <laughs> trying to, to bag the, the main spot. If, like, in that scene in The Martian where Matt Dane's, Damon's leaving, literally leaving Mars, you got going put Life on Mars or something by David Bowie, then, yeah, it would have blown my particular arc I was trying to do. So, yeah, that, that, I'm not saying we work against each other, but uh, in answer to your question, it's not, there's no sit-down with music supervisor. They're, they're really performing a completely different role, and yeah, Sometimes I see a music supervisor credited and I don't hear a song at all All well, I hear yeah. a score There probably was a song on a radio somewhere and someone's got to go license that because right. the director's probably going to say I want Jimi Hendrix or The Stones and actually the reality is that would cost 400 grand <laughs> So <laughs> the music supervisor's job is to go out there find 92 yep. other songs that sound like that but it cost $2,000 to license
0: right. So
1: that's, uh, yeah, that's his or her job It's nothing to do with me
0: yeah. How about the, the sound effects team?
1: That's more pertinent. That's more yeah. relevant. I just finished a film called The Ambush for Pierre Mirau that starts its final dub today here at Sony in, in, in uh, L.A. And uh, so afternoon I should nip over and see how they're getting on. So it's a war film set in 2018 in the desert in the Yemen. And as its title suggests, it's about an ambush a lot of gunfire and mines going off. Um, when I watched the film I couldn't think how what role I could play in this because there's so much sound but actually we figured out a really cunning place for the music to be. and yeah. A marriage between sound effects and music is really critical especially on a film like this or Black Hawk Down. I thought they did, Hans did a great job there. Yes. Occasionally the music popped up and said hello but mostly it was supporting this tension and supporting a lot of the, the sound of gunfire and added a lot to it without without getting in the way. So, the, yeah, sound effects are pretty key in every film, but in all the millions of animation I've done, they're incredibly important, because you think about it, we're building a sound scape up from nothing. Mm-hmm. There's no sound there. So at least, I don't know, whatever movie I've got up there, I could press play. There's some sound, because there's production. The actor's got to have a microphone somewhere, the bird's singing in the background, something. But with an animation, it's blank, dead. So in a way it's an amazing canvas and that's why I mm-hmm. think a lot of composers and sound designers love animation because it's right. it's a it's a world built from nothing nothing
0: I was going to to reference one particular sequence in one of your films and that is Man on Fire yeah. and the kidnapping sequence that strikes me as being one of the most interesting and very elaborate interweavings of music and sound effects the gunshots almost seem like they're part of the score the way they're treated and and i was tremendously impressed by the number of layers and how beautifully they meshed with the action
1: yeah all that's due to tony scott being the man that he was and the passion he had for getting that sort of thing this meeting of sound and visual yeah That particular scene is very complicated for me to talk about. It's a little bit emotional for me to talk about because that whole film was quite the thing for me. I'd done a couple of three, four films with Tony Scott already, and I guess I'd done a few of the Shrek's, and so I I was up and running as a composer. I had left Hans' studio to make my own way, and it was just very emotional. Right at that time, Dakota Fanning must have been exactly the same age as my daughter my first daughter blue eyed blonde haired and I don't know to to go to my studio every day and have this tension of man on fire where you throughout the film one assumes that the girl's going to be kidnapped and when she is she's definitely going to be killed it just was Tony was a real taskmaster and he thrived on that kind of tension within his crew and I don't mean that badly I love the guy Mm -hmm. I miss him badly but he he pushed all of us to to a great extent and i think that probably comes out in the music yeah that particular scene he made me write and rewrite again and ended up smattering a bit of nine inch nails all over it after i'd scored it (laughs) but if you listen to it it's seamless you wouldn't know which bit was nine inch nails which bit was me which bit was a gunfire what was a sound effect? What wasn't? Yeah, I was continually impressed as to how he used to call it digging out holes. And mm. Tony, it sounds like you're in the garden doing something. He's no H, I'm doing some digging out holes for the music. I've got this sound here, and I'm going to dig out a hole, and that's where you're going to come through.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. <I'm> like, okay, <laughs> exactly.
1: Let me, let, let me know where you've got the hole, and I'll, I'll see if I can come through. Um, right. But no, he was amazing. He was amazing.
0: Yep. Yep. Sound effects, the nine inch nails gunfire, your score, and a little Debussy as well. That's a lot of moving parts. Mm -hmm. Okay, on a slightly different note, we have a segment in every episode that we call Tell Me a Story. We signal it like this. So if you could take a lateral move and just tell any story you'd like from your life, your career, something made up, something you've told your children, anything you like.
1: (laughs) Actually, you warned me that I might have to do that, but... I had a couple of things on my mind, but since we have just been talking about Tony Scott, I'll tell you a little story about him that endeared me to him so much, and when I think back on it, and for those of you who are listening who don't know, Tony Scott took his own life about six years ago, and I'd done all his films since 1996, and a huge body of work with him, and so I felt very honoured, and I love the guy. So in the middle of that experience, so I think after Man on Fire, I think we were probably doing déjà vu with Denzel Washington. I had a studio on the beach, a three-story studio on the beach in Venice, and a lot of people working with me who inhabited it. And I had my studio was on the top floor. And Tony Scott used to come and visit every two days, and want to be right next to me as I was composing. And You could... It was every two days he would come, and in between his visits, the tension would begin to build towards his visit, just because he wasn't scary in any respect, but he was very demanding, and in that respect, he was quite scary. Now, he had just been to visit the night before, and so on the morning of my story, he... Everybody was quite relaxed at my studio. I mean, for working on a Tony Scott film, fairly relaxed... I was in my room, my studio manager buzzed through to me and said, look, Tony's on his way. I'm like, no, he, he was just here last night. No, Tony's on his way. So I said, but Nina, tell him I, can't, we can't, he was just, I haven't got anything to play him. He said, he's, come, he's I can hear him, he's on the stairs. <laughs> so she put the phone down. <laughs>
0: he,
1: he flew in the room. I said, H, how's it going? So I said, Tony hasn't progressed that much since, since last night. Is everything OK? He said, no, I'm just going to get my hair cut there's a couple of things you should know Tony was totally bald and he had a cu- couple of grey strands here secondly I said I had a lot going on in my studio I don't have a bloody hair salon i tell you that much so I said okay Tony he said no I should be here in a minute and then a young girl came into the room came into my studio had a little stool put him on a stool right behind my station he said go on get on with it H just get on with it so she flapped a kind of robe over him and I don't know I had my back to him I was working on, working on an essential cue for him in déjà vu and I could hear his I turned round and he didn't look much different and the girl had gone he was just sitting there listening and I said but um, is there something else you want from me? He said no I just want to be a part of it I want to be mm. here and it was the first time in in my experience of and I'd had quite a bit of experience by then probably 12 years 15 years of doing scores, many scores of my own, and watching Hans Zimmer. And it was the first time it really touched me that a filmmaker felt so comfortable with me <laughs> that he'd come over and have his bloody hair in <laughs> my studio just to listen to what I was doing, with mm-hmm. no underlying motive at all, nothing threatening about it at all. And I felt, at that moment, felt really honoured to be his composer. And he liked to call me his composer. And I, that was really stunning for me. Look, I'm going to take my thing over here. Is it-
0: picture
1: of him here that actually is at the deja vu premiere and that in, in yeah. a little higher and that and there he is and that i see how much hair he has
0: yeah
1: <laughs> and this is a self-portrait that's him that's what he thought he looked like pink hat cigar Bristol.
0: amazing yeah that's great pretty nice isn't it so he's yeah. he's
1: very very near and dear to my heart
0: um, it's very moving Thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, folks, listening to this, you've been uh, listening to part one of our conversation with master film composer Harry Gregson-Williams on the Gould Standard, brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. I should mention gratefully that Harry was a member of the recent Glenn Gould Prize Jury, and he took part in choosing as our laureate, groundbreaking Indigenous filmmaker Alanis Obamsawin, as our 13th prize winner, and will be organizing and announcing our celebrations post-COVID. We hope we all reach that point. And if you like what you're hearing, please be sure to let us know about it. Press like, share, and subscribe. Visit us at glengould.ca. And if you're feeling moved, please make a donation. Now, stay with us. And in part two, we're going to go into a little bit more on the role of technology in movies today. And we'll also discuss the film composer's worst nightmare. Stand by for that. Welcome back, friends. This is part two of our conversation with Harry Gregson Williams, film music composer par excellence. In part one, we talked a bit about Harry's musical beginnings and how he was initiated into the mysteries of writing music for film. And we touched a little bit about the the role of technology in transforming the whole field. If um, you look back in the early days, uh, really probably up until the 50s it was scoring for a mono soundtrack there were no click tracks pictures of people like corn gold conducting an orchestra and no one has headphones on so everything is done from the cue sheet now obviously you've got a lot more creative control and a lot more tools in your toolkit is that liberating in in the well, sense Well i that don't, i
1: wasn't part of the the old school yeah. the only thing i've ever known is, is is how it is today and yeah it is it's fabulously inspiring I love part of the process when I've written something I think is going to work if I arrange it and orchestrate it. And usually that will mean taking a piece that I've written on some manuscript paper and taking it to my workstation and start to to work it out. And, and the possibilities are endless.
0: And you can layer in elements that could never have existed in the same space in that old methodology. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's all about layering.
0: Yeah, but also, I for an aspiring young composer who wants to break into film, is the investment in all that tech a, a huge barrier to entry, or are <laughs> yeah. there simple
1: ways? To- no, the, I don't know any simple way to do that. I can only tell you from my experience, which was that I came to the states in '95 to assist Hans Zimmer, and at that time I didn't even own a computer I didn't I came with hand luggage I didn't come with speakers and keyboards and stuff like that I had no none I had no idea of how to use any of the technology and so I learnt as I went on but that was a very that was a very fortunate position to be in I don't know that I think you'd have to show up with some of the aforementioned stuff in order Mm. in terms of the finances of the thing it was crazy I didn't have any money I absolutely didn't have any money but Hans marched me down to the the nearest Bank of America, where I had opened an account, didn't have any money to put in it, but I had an account, and he guaranteed me a $100,000 loan immediately wow. so that I would have, you see that stack over in the corner? Now, yeah. that's a stack of synths now. But back in the day, that had 27 Roland S760s in it. Why? And the, an S760 is a 2U little sampler. It was the bee's knees back in the day in 1995. And basically, in order to a hit to assist Hans Zimmer, I'd be able to sound a little bit like Hans Zimmer technically, and that's what he had all his sounds in was a rack of 760. If I were to going to build to put this together, he's like, "Harry, yeah, it's an investment. If it doesn't work out, it's me who's going down," he said, and it would have been because he was the guarantee <laughs> guarantor, what do you call it? And it was crazy because each unit cost, I don't know, whatever. They were about $3,500 each. And it was an extra $1,500 for 24 megs of memory or something like that. But you could get Hans' string section over two of these things, his brass section into two of these things. And then, so having got that, he, he, he said to me quite clearly, don't worry, th- this all this all." he buy your house one day. I said, like, oh, uh-huh. "Come on, let's not exaggerate this too much, please, Hans." <laughs> but he said, "Okay, we'll turn it down a bit. This is an investment. You, you'll pay the bank back in no time." It took me a while, I can tell you. But yeah, so I, I think I think someone starting out now has to have uh, some experience and some ability in programming. Yeah, mm-hmm. has, has to be
0: done, and has to invest in some gear.
1: Well, yeah, or will find someone who. We'll do what Ounce Help, help you borrow it, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I'd like to talk about a couple of scores in particular, uh, starting with Kingdom of Heaven. That's got to be, I'm guessing, your longest score ever because it's yeah. a, a vast film. Yeah. And uh, that must have been quite a, a special experience because you weave several different influences there's definitely a near east middle eastern influence yeah. and you work with middle eastern instruments uh, yeah. like the oud and the Kamenje there's a medieval instrument there's a choral yeah. or influence there's a lot of choral elements yeah How did you, why do you, yeah. you think
1: i was waiting all my life to do a score that featured music f- that, that i'd be able to dream up from my days as a chorister yeah absolutely mm. it was kingdom of heaven for goodness sake so yeah, I, was, I felt very fortunate to do that score. But it was a monumental task because if you see the director's cut, you'll see the film that I scored. So that's way over three hours long. And it needed a lot of music, a lot of music. The movie that went into theatres was a cut-down version of the movie that we really made and therefore a cut-down version of the score. So there's less score in the movie that most people saw. Um, but yeah, I ended up having to score the longer version of this film
0: did you conceive the score because it has almost like a symphonic poem quality to it there is a a sense of unity across it even though there are clearly there's the the section in France the section in in and around Jerusalem and then back in France at the end but it does have a kind of um, an integrity of the whole at least hopefully
1: it's a little uncomfortable you're talking about it right now I'll tell you why because the movie that I'm doing right now with Ridley Scott is set in 14th century France and ah. not crusade movie so we're not going to Jerusalem there won't be any of that but it's about the last it's called The Last Duel it's written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon oh,
0: yeah.
1: and it's about the last duel to take place in France but it's about a bit more than that it's a, it's a, a very modern story in many ways so yeah I'm working on that and Yes, I'm, I'm back in Coral Land. And I'm back in France. <laughs> when does the plane leave? Take
0: me there! Um, uh, I can go for that. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I'm at the beginning of a very similar journey to Kingdom of Heaven right now. I've got mm-hmm. much less time. Went, uh, I had six months to do Kingdom of Heaven. I need to, to get this wrapped up in, in yeah. eight weeks, I think.
0: Narnia, a lion witch in the wardrobe, has a similar... Effect on me. It feels like a very consistently composed, conceived collection of musical cues, but they really do fit together in a very well, good. What, way. Uh, well, what, yeah. good.
1: What are you driving at? That most scores seem to be a random bits of. Nonsense, they probably are actually.
0: No, I, I was going to contrast sh- these that scores we- should be
1: cohesive, for goodness sake. Yeah,
0: they ought to be, but, but I was going to contrast that with uh, which we've already talked about Man on Fire, which really has oh, okay a lot of yeah. clashing and contrasting yes. elements. And
1: that's you're right, they do clash and they should clash. Tony yeah. always said, I want to hear the edges, mm-hmm. yeah, and sure as enough, yeah, okay, yeah. now good, thank you for that for that comment about 90. It was hopefully it's it should be cohesive because. It's the world of Narnia. Yes. It was a specific it, place and time. I was taken along for that ride with the director of the Shreks, mm-hmm. Andrew Adamson, who became a great friend of mine, and asked me to do right. those Narnias. Yeah. I, I was felt so um, honored to do it. You know, obviously, right. the, the, as a kid, I, I remember my mother reading me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, yeah.
0: When you do the, mu- the music for a classic that's meant a lot in the early lives of so many people, it must carry a sense of responsibility.
1: <laughs> yes. And the more I go on, I've got five children who cover a lot of the bases because they're from 22 years of age to five. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. So I can, I, I've can got no shortage of critics here as to, <laughs> as to whether, whether it's, we're, we're hitting the, the right spots. Yeah.
0: Well, the inner child in me says you done good. So uh, <laughs> okay. anyway, well, for thanks. what it's worth, I uh, I don't think that the conversation would be complete if if I didn't talk a little bit about Shrek and what that yeah. meant in your career, because obviously it was a huge hit. It became a big franchise. Yeah. And if I'm right, you scored all of them, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And,
1: and the TV specials and the theme park rides and God knows what else.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm. Was that a, a bit of a breakthrough for you, career-wise? Yeah, no,
1: it, was, it was amazing. It was a fantastic chance. And little did I know, when we were doing the first Shrek, I didn't get it. I didn't, especially the first cut that I saw of Shrek, I thought it was hitting very low. I thought it was babyish. Hmm. I didn't. But I'd already done Chicken, Run and Ants with, with Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he was at the helm. He may not have directed any of those DreamWorks movies, but he sure as heck was at the helm. And he's really a, a straightforward person to follow, very respectful of other people's opinions, but very strong in his own opinion. And I always liked that, actually. He, 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 there was no uh, nonsense. If he you played him a cue, he didn't like it. He'd say, I don't like it, I'm not, I'm not responding to it. It doesn't feel romantic. It doesn't feel exciting or whatever it was. As painful as that might be, you'd be surprised at how often it's like... You don't really get a straight answer from a director who perhaps leaves the room and tells his editor, no, don't put that piece of music in, I didn't really right. like it. Like, Why the hell are you going to tell a composer that? But this is, these are the, the politics that are involved in making a film and being a part of that process. I always remember Hans saying, Harry, if you're going to work out at all in this town, apart from the fact that you are going to have to borrow some money and get yourself some gear, you're going to need to understand that you've got to be part politician, part therapist and part composer. Mm. Composing is a large part of it, but it's not all of it. There's going to be a lot that you've got to learn.
0: You work with a lot of big personalities and you have to find a way of being responsive to them. Yeah. I did want to ask about the film composer's nightmare. And I don't know that you've ever had this experience, but certainly some of the greats have, and that's the rejected score. Alex North's original score for 2001 was... Abandoned yeah, in no, favor I, of the I, temp track? I know what it? you're
1: talking about. My, I've only one thing to say about this. it's say the rejected score. When you think of like a James Horner had his scores thrown out a few times, didn't he? I know Hans has. All one can hope is that the score that they were trying to do was judged in its entirety against the film that it was trying to score. Often you'll, I've rescored, I think six, seven films, been asked to rescore more than that and have turned them down. But for instance, Team America was one that I that, that I was asked to do way after they, they got the usual guy to do it, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know something went wrong. But and because I didn't really know the personalities involved, I was fine with rescoring it. But on occasion, it would be someone I know. I don't. I'm not going to do it with that. But what I was going to say is that many things can happen. When for all, I'm not going to tell you. For instance, I rescored Team America because. The composer's whole score didn't work out. I don't know. Maybe there was. Maybe the, he, he pissed them off over a dinner. It wasn't even the mm-hmm. music. Maybe, and maybe he got sick. Maybe he. Did, there was a cue that he refused to change. A cue, and they actually loved the rest of the score. Maybe they hated the whole score. Maybe he only wrote three cues. He was on a beach in Hawaii. That mm-hmm. was the problem. Maybe he wrote a whole score, and half of them liked it, and the producers didn't like it, or something. It's very easy to say the rejected score. I've had one score that wasn't accepted and the reasons for that remain between me and the director but it, w- it wasn't a whole score that was rejected right. I started the film and then he went with somebody else in the end and I was very uh. relieved about that I was very relieved about it for a number of reasons that I can't really discuss because they're very personal to both me and the director but was I heartbroken? my god yes absolutely heartbroken do I hold any animosity against him? No, not at all. Was he right mm-hmm. to go to the next guy? I don't know. I thought I had it nailed. <laughs> <laughs> Life moves on. And funny enough, I'm scoring another film for him right now.
0: Your music is so inventive and and so moving. And have you thought about doing concert music? Is that yeah, an inspiration Yeah, And
1: you? I've, I've actually, I've, uh, an old colleague of mine, John Powell, who's really not a too shabby composer at all, lives Mm -hmm. just up the road. Uh, We started out together, actually. He's done some concert music and was encouraging me the other day to maybe do some. I don't know. I am... Having fallen into this from teaching, I don't think I'm quite there yet where I can say, yes, I think I'm moving on to the next challenge. I think (laughs) I've got got I need to knock out the truly proper best... HGW score first and then maybe I'll think about trying some other medium because it's a very different kettle of fish that man give me a film and I'll never be lost for words within music
0: Mm -hmm. but
1: put me on a concert stage I don't know I'm not sure.
0: If it ever happens, please let me know. I'll buy a <laughs> ticket. <laughs>
1: you want to be in the front row so you can see it down. I meltdown. absolutely
0: want to be in the front <laughs> row seat, for sure. And uh, these things are not either ors. They they can exist side by well, side. See, well,
1: if someone has a suggestion, I, I, a lot of these people, the John Powers, the Hans the, the a lot of people who I can think of inspired by another person's work in order to do that, like a libretto, for instance. I know John was. Mm. I see... I, I am inspired by other people's work, but by the same token, I'm a little intimidated by it. I think, well, as would could I, if it were, say, a libretto or or, or a story from a book, something like that, would I do it justice? But strangely, mm-hmm. I don't have that. I don't have that anxiety doing a film. I think because it's in real time. In a film, as I told you, I can make a misstep and. Without all that nonsense about replacing scores and stuff, I can make a misstep and a director can say, no, 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 Harry, come back down this path, go down that path, direct mm-hmm. me, direct me. Yeah, why don't you be a director? Direct me! <laughs> so I'm quite, well, I'm quite, I am quite quite like being directed. Now, I feel a little lonely if it's just, what should we do? Who's, where's the, uh, there's no film, there's no story. Um, so maybe I, maybe one day someone will push a story or a concept and pass me and I'll think, hmm, I I'd like to jump on that musically.
0: Just choose a text by someone who's been dead a long time and you can't disappoint them. (laughs) Okay. It's been absolutely wonderful, a real delight. Thank you so much, Harry. And everyone, watch for those next films from Harry Gregson Williams. The music is um, such an important part of the whole how are you today?
2: I'm fine, Brian. How are you?
0: I'm great. Well, that was a, a really interesting journey into the whole world of film music. Uh, Harry is very uh, articulate as a uh, as a spokesperson for the art, don't you think?
2: Absolutely. I think it was a, a really fascinating conversation. And I loved hearing about his experiences with Werner and um, the Scots.
0: And the Scots. Absolutely. You know, one of the things about um, going to the movies or watching a, t- uh, a TV program or something on um, on uh, a streaming service, it seems to have been created like a work of magic. You really don't see what goes into it, all the innumerable stages. And uh, I think it's really great to, to pull the veil back sometimes and see how complex and how many levels of Creativity, how much um, human interaction there is in order to create the product.
2: Absolutely. There is always a plethora of humans behind the scenes making all of that magic happen.
0: Exactly. It doesn't just descend from the stars. And what we end up seeing is um, the result of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of creative decisions that all get distilled down into the final film or a TV program, or a video game, or what have you.
2: And knowing that makes you appreciate it all the much more.
0: Exactly. As well as um, the idea of music being a force to support drama, to give a, a special identity to a particular character or a theme, um, as well as sometimes supporting the mood of the of the film, without your even noticing it's there. sometimes it's completely um, unconscious, but it still works its magic.
2: Absolutely. I feel like it's almost when you don't notice it that's when it's at its best.
0: Yes, absolutely. Although we certainly wouldn't want to part with memorable themes like the the Shrek tunes and and so on. Um, Anyway, um, Olivia, I understand that you have some important announcements for our listeners.
2: I do. I wanted to share with you all how you can get a little bit more involved with the Gould Standard because we rely on your support in more ways than one. And the easiest thing that you can do to help us out is by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling generous while you're there, you can leave a review and let us know what you think of the show. To subscribe to The Gold Standard, you can do that from your preferred streaming service. Or if you happen to be listening from our website right now, you can subscribe directly from that nifty little media player you see in front of you. And of course, social media, right, Brian?
0: absolutely please you know, uh spread the word uh make a tweet um uh post a little a little screenshot on instagram you can do that you're allowed yeah absolutely
2: oh we'd love that <laughs> and we would share it as well uh you can keep up with us Uh, across social media by searching the Glenn Gould Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We post all of our podcast news there, and you'll hear about all of the other exciting projects we've got going on at the foundation as well.
0: And we have a lot more wonderful episodes coming up with some of the most interesting and provocative uh, people in the arts world today.
2: Yes, 2021 is going to be a very good year for the Gould Standard. And of course. Oh,
0: we are so busy. We are so busy.
2: <laughs> very, very busy. Um, and of course, speaking of busy, we are a registered Canadian charity and we do rely on your generous support to keep this little ship afloat. So if you visit www.glengold.ca, you'll find a big red donate button right at the top. And we really do appreciate every gift in any amount that we receive and we put every dollar
0: to good use. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well done, Olivia. And now, as uh, is our habit, we'd like to end with a little music brought to you through the all-mechanical, non-electronic, no transistors, no diodes, no uh, integrated circuits, magic of the Edison talking machine. Mr. Edison, please. (laughs)